love that line. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. We've been looking at this letter, if you've been with us for a number of weeks, hopefully you're familiar now with Peter's theme, that the new life in Jesus, right, this, this being born again to a living hope, gives us a new identity, it makes us a new people, but it also puts us at odds with the society around us. And that's been true uh, from the first century all the way up until now. As I mentioned the first week, we are, we are inside outsiders. We are inside of God's grace, inside of God's love, united to Christ. But that puts us outside of the society around us, maybe the family around us, the neighbors around us, that we, we have this strange dual identity, dual role. We, we still exist in this world and we live in this world and yet... We are at odds with it. We march to the beat of a, of a different drum. And so Peter, as he goes through his letter, is answering the question of how do you live as an outsider? And back in chapter 2, verse 13, he began answering that question for different groups of people within the church. And so uh, in two thirteen through 17, he talks about how we live as citizens, even under uh, an unbelieving government. In verse 18 through 25, he talks about how slaves should relate to their masters, believing slaves living with unbelieving masters. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, he talks about unbelieving wives, how they should live with their, excuse me, believing wives, how they should live with their unbelieving husbands so as to win them to Christ. And then in chapter 3, verse 7, how it is uh, husbands, believing husbands, are to treat their unbelieving wives, even though they disagree fundamentally. But now, in verse 8, he begins to address the whole church, the whole community of Jesus' followers. And so, this morning, we're going to read 1 Peter 3, 8 through 12. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab the church Bible there uh, that should be in front of you. If you're using that one, it's page 1015. Let's listen in to what Peter tells us. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, insult for insult. But on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This is the word of the Lord. 
The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, once again, would you take your word and would you use it to change us from the inside out? Would you reveal to us again how your grace and steadfast love make us a different kind of people? And Lord, for those who do not yet know you, I pray that this word would be an invitation to you and to a better kind of life, to life forever. So would you bless the reading and the hearing and now the preaching of your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. What is your calling? What is it that you are called to do? Nowadays, we typically use that word to refer to our our job or our work, or or some of us do. Um, And that word calling, or the other word that we often use, vocation, both of those mean the the same thing. Their root words talk about voice, right? Um, It certainly can include that, but the Bible uses that word calling in a much richer sense, First, when the Bible talks about calling, it points out that the calling is something that God does. It's not just something that I feel drawn to. It's not just what I would prefer, but calling actually begins with God. And of course, really the, the first calling of God is, is our salvation. God calls us, as Peter says in chapter 2, verse 9, God calls us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Uh, He calls us sons and daughters. He calls us into, out of our sin and into relationship with himself. And then along with that, right, uh, not only is calling something God does, not does it just have to do with, it, it primarily is my salvation, but it also speaks to my entire life. God's calling, when we talk about calling in the biblical sense, It's not just about what I do to pay the bills, uh, but rather uh, it applies to every area of life. And so in that way, God's calling is is multifaceted. It applies uh, dependent upon the various roles that we play. And so man, woman, husband, wife, if you're married, father, mother, if you have kids, your work, your school, God's calling is on you in all of those different ways. And here, Peter describes the calling of the whole church, particularly when the church is under attack. Now, again, at this point, the church is not under governmental attack, not under government persecution. At this point, it's what we might call soft persecution, right? That, not that it feels soft, but society uh, is ostracizing believers. And so, how does Peter, what is our calling. And here it is. Our calling is to bless others even when we're insulted. Our calling is to bless others even when cursed, even when attacked. So we often talk about or want to talk about being countercultural. 
I don't think you can be any more countercultural than this. I don't think something would speak more winsomely of the grace of God than for us when assaulted uh, verbally to respond with blessing. That's as countercultural as it gets, especially in 21st century America. Uh, Peter looks at this two ways. First, he talks about who we are on the inside, and second, who we are then on the outside. And so look again at verse 8. Who does Peter call us to be on the inside? And this he applies, he says, finally, all of you. So this is everyone in the church, every follower of Jesus, whatever your role or responsibility, Peter calls us to be a certain kind of person. And he uses five words to describe it. First, he says, unity of mind or uh, of one mind or like minded. So what this means, it doesn't mean that we necessarily agree on all the minors, right? To be like-minded is not, to, is not unanimity. It's not that there's no disagreement. But it does mean that we agree on the majors. And it even means that we agree on what those majors are. That, we, that the main things are the main things, And that we leave the minor things. And again, how upside down this is from our current culture. Uh, Not that everything we disagree on uh, in in the culture war is a minor thing. But how often uh, do we stamp our feet about relatively unimportant, insignificant things? How, How passionate do we get about our hobbies? And yet, sadly quiet on uh, the lordship of Jesus and on the good news. Uh, we are like-minded. We, we, we agree, right? We agree that the Bible is the word of God. We agree that Jesus is the son of God and savior of sinners. We agree that, that we're sinners and that we need his mercy, right? All of those are majors and we want to accentuate the things that we agree on. Unity of mind. Sympathy. The word means uh, shared feeling or sharing feelings with. Paul puts it this way in Romans 12:15 he says rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep I don't know how many of you have seen uh have seen The Office uh that's a, a show we like to watch I can't necessarily recommend all of its parts to you but um the person the person that Peter is describing here is the opposite of Michael Scott uh Michael is the boss he is one of the main characters uh and the odd thing about Michael is the, the, he believes that the entire office revolves around him. Uh, so there's an episode that we watched recently where it was Michael's birthday. Uh, and Michael wants everyone in the office to celebrate his birthday. And so he buys himself gifts. He, he tells the party planning committee what to do. He gets his own cake. Uh, he even takes the whole office out to the ice skating rink because that's what Michael wants to do. Now, here's the thing about Michael. He assumes that he's doing this for the benefit of the office. He's thinking that he's, bring, you know, that, that he's bringing joy to them by helping them celebrate him. Uh, and there's one person in the office whose name is Kevin, and he is actually waiting to hear from his doctor about whether or not uh, he has skin cancer. 
And so when Michael finds out, uh, when, it, when, when the rest of the office reveals to Michael that every, everybody else is concerned about Kevin, Michael gets really upset because they're not celebrating his birthday. They're worried about Kevin instead. That's the opposite of sympathy. That's the opposite of who we want to be. Brotherly love. Peter has already talked about this, and so we've spent some time there, but uh, Peter is saying that, that the church is family. Especially, and that would have been especially poignant for, for maybe these believers who have been kicked out or rejected by their families. That, that the church is to have the kind of love that brothers and sisters have. And now you may say, gosh, that doesn't sound very pleasant at all. I like some people a whole lot more than I like my family. Uh, but there is, there is to be a deep and a, an abiding love in the church that makes the church look like family. That the church is a family of families. Brotherly love. Peter says, uh, tenderhearted. Uh, your translation may say compassionate. The word literally means good bowels. But this is not about your digestive health. Okay? Uh, it, means, it means strong feelings that come from deep within. Okay? So kind of a, a deep yearning and compassion that I... That I feel deeply moved for you, particularly if you're in need. A uh, similar word is used when Jesus goes to the tomb of Lazarus. And it says that he is deeply moved or indignant at Lazarus's death. Peter says that's how we should feel about one another. That we care and we care deeply. Again, how countercultural is this? It's not that we don't care deeply about things. If anything, I would probably say we wear too much of our emotions on our sleeves, whether that's real or digital. Right? We seem to be pretty good at venting about all manner of things. But do we love our opinions more than our people? What is it that's most important to you? Is it being understood or is it seeking to understand your brother or sister in Christ? Tenderhearted. And then Peter finishes the list with this one. Being of a, of a humble mind. Literally a lowly mind. So Peter begins with like-minded and he ends with lowly-minded. Now, up to this point, all of the virtues that Peter has mentioned would have been virtues that, sh that were shared by Greco-Roman culture. Uh, that that non-Christians in the first century would have looked at this list and said, these are good things. We, we can get on board with these things. These are, these are things that make for a good family and good society. But then they would get to this last word, humility. Humble, lowly. And they would have said, no, not that. They would, they would have cringed at that. Because humility was not a virtue in the first century. It was a sign of weakness. It was something you were forced into like a slave. But certainly not something you would choose. And so again, Peter is 
calling the church a counter community, a new community whose values sometimes overlap with the community around it and then sometimes challenge it, sometimes subvert it. But humility makes a lot of sense if you think about the Christian message. In fact, this is exactly where the Christian message would take you. Because what do we have in the gospel but a God who humbles himself? If you just go and look at John chapter 13, John tells us that Jesus, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And how does he demonstrate that in John 13? He disrobes and he grabs a towel and he starts washing their feet. He even washes Judas's feet. So Jesus's love is expressed in humility, in lowliness. In fact, if we're being honest, well, in fact, I would say that that humility is simply being honest with yourself. And that's, what, and that's where grace takes you. Grace enables you to be honest with yourself. Because if you're humble, right, if you've, if you've been transformed by grace, you realize that you don't, you don't bring anything to the table. As the old hymn goes, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. That's humility. I've got nothing to offer. As my friend Ryan used to tell me, Kevin, you're just not, you know, I, you know, being worried about missing God's plan for my life. He said, Kevin, you're just not that important. Right? Humility is me being honest with myself. I see myself for the weak, needy, dependent person that I really am. That everything I have comes from the grace of God. From my next breath to my eternal salvation. All of it is a gift. All of it is grace, and therefore that should lead us to humility. We deserve nothing from God but wrath, but what we receive from God is mercy. Humility. We spent uh, the summer of 2008 uh, near Beijing, China. Uh, China was gearing up at that point for the Summer Olympics, uh, and it was going to be a big event because it was the first time, really, that the doors were open for that kind, on that kind of global scale. A number of things have changed since 2008. Um, but at that point, China was very eager to welcome the world to Beijing. Uh, and so uh, there, there were all of these ads uh, and campaigns to try to basically to get the Chinese people to, to look good for the world that was coming to its shores. And there was a, a billboard uh, in the city where we were, uh, where we were working. Um, so Chinese translations into English don't always go su- super well. Uh, it's, hard, it's hard to translate well. Um, and this billboard said, Make harmonious traffic together. You get the gist of what they were trying to say. Uh, if you... I will often hear people complain about, you know, the traffic on 65 or people in Chilton County don't know how to drive. If you've never been to China, really any other country aside from the United States, you have no idea just how bad driving can be, right? 
Um, we just like zooming through the streets, honking horns, telling people to get out of the way, right? They're like waiting for the light. No such thing. You just go as soon as you have an opportunity, whether it's green, whether it's red, it doesn't matter, right? You honk and you go. So they need a billboard that says, make harmonious traffic together. Um, how do we make harmonious traffic together? Right, because you read this list, at least I read this list, and I say, Peter, I don't think I'm that kind of person. How do we become these kinds of people? Well, first, you have to be born again, as Peter describes back in chapter 1. Right? These, these traits are not natural to us. We do not naturally seek the humble road. Uh, And so we need supernatural intervention, right? We need help to come from outside of us. But apart from that, I I would encourage you to do this this week. I want you to read Philippians 2, 5 through 11. And I want you to, to meditate on those verses. Because Paul there uh, is revealing the heart and person of Jesus. Jesus' downward road. How he willingly laid aside his glory to take on human flesh. And not the human flesh of a king, but that of a lowly person in society. I mean, when you really think about the incarnation and the humility of God in the incarnation, it's remarkable. None of us would even know that Bethlehem or Nazareth existed if Jesus were not to be born there and had not lived his life there. Right? Those are not important places. They wouldn't even be places on a map in the 21st century if Jesus' life had not taken place there. But Jesus uh, lays aside his glory and embraces humility so that he can save sinners. So... I would say reflect on the person. How do I become this kind of person? Reflect on the person of Jesus. Reflect on, reflect on what Jesus has done first. And then I would encourage you to do this. Take Romans, 9, excuse me, Romans 12, 9 through 20, 21, and pray through it. Read those different descriptions that Paul gives. Paul basically gives kind of a longer list of what church looks like. Uh, pray through those things. And then as we come together, as we gather, you know, we're moving into the summer, so our small groups won't be meeting. But as you gather with fellow believers, encourage one another in these things. Let's pray for one another in this so that we can become the kind of people on the inside that Peter is describing. Now, that's who we're called to be on the inside. Let's look at who Peter calls us to be on the outside. Look at verse 9. He says, Do not repay evil for evil or insult for insult. Now, a few weeks back, I explained right in, that the first century Near Eastern culture, uh, Mediterranean culture, was a shame-honor culture. Right? That means that the, the best thing that can happen to you is to be honored, and the worst thing that can happen to you is to be shamed. Right? The ultimate good is honor, the ultimate bad, the ultimate evil is shame. So, and, and morality, right? what's good and what's bad, objectively speaking, so, it, it plays into that, but only sort of. So, for instance, um, 
I had a friend that I worked with when we were in college. We would work on the road together, and so he would, uh, for, for some strange reason, I think he was a, a kleptomaniac, he would, he would steal things from the restaurants that we would go to, like cups, silverware, coasters. It was kind of bizarre. And when I would say, um, Matt, not this Matt, but, you know, sorry, sorry for every Matt in the room. Um, Matt, I don't, I don't think that's right. Uh, you're, th- those, those don't belong to you. And he would say, that company's so big, they'll never notice it's missing. Right? The, 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 the morality was kind of on a slide. Like it was, it was situational ethics. Is it right or wrong in this moment? Well, it just depends. And so in a shame-honor culture, I could steal something, and it would be okay as long as it didn't bring shame upon me or upon my family. So shame and honor were the ultimate values. And so in that environment, in that culture, if someone insults you, if someone shames you, well, you have to defend your honor. You have to, you have to respond in kind. You have to shame or insult back because that's what matters most. Thankfully, we've progressed in 2,000 years. We no longer feel this way. That's a joke, right? Um, Some would say we no longer live in a shame-honor culture. I would ask, why do we boo the opposing team when they run out of the tunnel? What are we doing? Well, we're shaming them, right? We 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 want them to be shamed. Not only, it's not simply enough that we defeat them on the field, but we have to make them feel that defeat by heaping shame and cursing upon them, right? So we still live in, those same, in that same value system. We still live in a shame-honor culture. We can just hide it behind different veneers. And so these words that Peter gives would have been just as challenging to Peter's listeners as they are to us. He's saying, don't do what is natural to you. Don't do what the cultural expectation is, Right? The cultural expectation is, nope, tit for tat, right? They insult you, you insult them back. And then it just becomes this escalating thing. And then it's a matter of who can finish it first, right? Peter says, no, that's not how this works. Don't respond with insult. Don't respond with evil. On the contrary, bless. Now, here in the South, we need to define what that word means. It's not bless it, okay? Right? It's not. It's not the. It's not the southern lady who says bless your heart, and then you know thinks all kinds of evil, wicked things about you while she says bless your heart. Um, to bless literally means to speak well of. It's where we get our word eulogy from. It means to speak good or to speak well of. But even more than that. In Hebrew culture, which would have been Peter's culture, his, his origin, to bless someone meant to pray for God's favor on them. So Peter is saying, ask God to show his favor to those who curse and insult you. If you receive cursing, bless in return. Which 
is exactly what Jesus commanded in Luke chapter 6. K.O. read it earlier for our call to repentance. We are called to bless those. It's what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 43 through 44, where he says, you are to bless your enemies and be kind to your enemies. It's what God told his people all the way back in Jeremiah 29. So uh, in Jeremiah 29, a lot of Israel has been exiled. They are outside of the promised land. They have been carried off by the Babylonians. So they are they no longer live in their homes. They've been carried away by war and have been forced forcibly relocated to somewhere else. Here's how God tells them to live in exile. He says Jeremiah 29:7, "Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile." Now, I want you to think about Again, how countercultural that is. Because just, just think about how you would respond if a foreign army invades our country, takes your home and your property, gathers you and your family up, forces you to another country, and says, You will live here. This is your home now. How would you feel about that? The welfare of that city probably is not the first thing on my mind. But that's exactly what God tells his people to do. Seek the welfare, the shalom, the peace, right? That word shalom means kind of the all-encompassing good. Seek the welfare of the city where, why? I have sent you. Babylon didn't take you. I sent you. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you and Pray to the Lord on its behalf. So I'm to seek the welfare of the city primarily for, by praying for its behalf, on its behalf. And then he says this, because in its welfare, you will find your welfare. When God blesses that city, you will be blessed in return. Very similar to what Peter says. On the contrary, bless. Because, he says, this is your calling. You want to know what your calling is? You ever asked, what is God's calling on my life? Here it is. Seek God's favor for those who insult you and seek your harm. That's all kind of backwards, isn't it? That's all kind of upside down from the way that we naturally think. And then he says this, so that you may obtain a blessing. He says, when you, when you fulfill your calling to bless those who insult you, you obtain a blessing. Now, what does he mean by that? Is, is Peter now teaching salvation by works? Is he saying that we only earn God's salvation if we follow this command? No. One, because that wouldn't fit with what Peter says in other parts of the letter. He's already told us that the new birth and all of salvation, everything that comes with it, is something that God does, not us. But it also doesn't fit this sentence. The word obtain here means to inherit. And you don't earn an inheritance. You are given an inheritance. So what does Peter Mean? What is he saying? That when we bless, we will inherit 
a blessing. I think he means something similar to what Jesus means. Uh, if you look in, uh, in Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus teaches us how to pray, at the end of that prayer, he says that if we do not forgive others their trespasses, we will not be forgiven. And what Jesus means is not that, that that's, a, that's a merit of, of salvation. That means that's a, that's a condition. It's a condition of grace that if, that if I understand that I am forgiven by God, then I will forgive others. And so if I do not forgive others, then it may in fact indicate I am not forgiven by God, no matter how much I think I am. That, they're, they're, that our lives will reflect that which we treasure most. That if I treasure God's forgiveness, if I bank on God's forgiveness, and if I know that I have received it, then I will forgive other people. Similar fashion, Peter is saying that those who have truly been born again into a living hope, those who have that inheritance of blessing in the future, will bless others in the present. That will be a condition of the, of the grace that we have received, that we will indicate by that hope that we by, that we can that we have been forgiven by or excuse me that we have been blessed by being able to bless others why why is that true again i think because the more we understand grace the more we will bless others instead of curse them why well who has done evil i have Who has insulted others? I have. Who has spoken deceitfully? I have. Who has cursed God with my thoughts, words, and deeds? I have. And how has God responded to me? With blessing. And the more that I live in that reality the more that I understand how much God has poured out richly undeserved blessings on me, the more that I am enabled to bless others who curse me and insult me. God's promised blessing enables me to become a new kind of person, both inside and out. Peter quotes from Psalm 34, In verses 10 through 12. And it says much of what we've already said. But I want to look at verse 12 where it says, The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now I don't have to tell you that uh, I want one of those conditions and I don't want the other. I want, the, I want the Lord's eyes on me. I want his ears open to my prayers. I don't want his face against me. So we have to ask, who is righteous? Because when I read that word righteous, I have a problem. I don't think that applies to me. And so I want to go to Psalm 34 and I want to read for you from the end of that psalm. A lot of this psalm actually uh, is in the background of First Peter. Psalm thirty-four, nineteen. he says this, uh, this is David writing, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. 
He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Now, who's that about? John uses that verse to describe Jesus' death. Not one of Jesus' bones were broken. Who is the righteous person? Jesus is. Verse 21 of Psalm 34. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. How do I become the righteous? I take refuge in the Lord. I take refuge in the one who didn't have any of his bones broken. I take refuge in the one who is righteous and I receive his righteousness. I pray that that would be you this morning. That you would take refuge in the righteous son of God. And that as you do, you would become more and more the kind of person that Peter is describing, both inside and outside. Let me pray. Father, we pray that you would apply your word right now to our hearts, to those of us who need a righteousness other than ourselves. Lord, we thank you for your conviction, but we also thank you for your grace that transforms and renews us, that makes us new people from the inside out. Would you do that? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.